Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. Good morning, good morning. It is Tuesday, the 9th of August, 2022. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Network. I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thank you, thank you, thank you for um, including me in your day. You can always communicate with me during the show on the text line, 877-933-2484. Love to know where you're listening, how you're listening. Good morning to Sally and Kodiak listening on the Faith Radio app. Today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day, because we want to be in the Word of God before we get out there into the world that God so loves, right? When we get into the Word of God, so where in the Word are you this morning? I'm in Proverbs 11:28. Those who trust in their riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. The juxtaposition there is um, where we place our trust. So the righteous place their trust in a person, the Lord our God. And the righteous who are rightly related to God, right, redeemed, thrive like a green leaf. That's an image from Psalm 1. It's an image um, reflected in Revelation 21 and 22. But if you put your trust in the things of this earth, The riches, as described here, those who trust in their riches, um, those who trust in things will fall. Well, why is that? Because the grass withers and the flower fades. Like, right? Everything turns to dust. From dust you have come, uh, to dust you shall return. You can't literally not take it with you. Um, Or in uh, maybe more contemporary monopoly parlance, it all goes back in the box. Those who trust in their riches will fall. But the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. So where in the word are you today? And why does it matter? Like, why do I harp on this question about being in the word of God? Well, first of all, scripture um, says that it is, uh, it is what forms us. The Apostle Paul even says, like, it, it is what saves us. Paul says to hold fast to the teaching. He's talking there about the word of God and thereby, quote, save yourself. Like, right. So now we know we're not self-saved. Like, uh, we know we know that. I mean, among all the authors of Scripture who probably talks more about um, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. I mean, nobody but the Apostle Paul. So he's not talking about the act of um the saving work of Jesus upon the cross. He is talking about how um, over the course of time, by keeping a close watch on ourselves and on the teaching, like this is from 1 Timothy 4.16, persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers, right? There is this need for us to be in the word of God for the purposes of salvation. Scripture also, you know, frees us, it liberates us 
Um, you will know the truth and the truth will what? The truth will set you free. That's John eight thirty two. 32. Um, you know, it is, it is a source of grace and peace and hope and sanctifying power and joy and protection and hope. And although some people resist it, it, it is where we come to know God. So scripture um, and the right handling of scripture is really important. So where in the word are you today? Okay, now we're going to make a little um, transition here in the conversation. Because something happened yesterday that you may or may not know has happened, but it is actually leading all of uh, the news sources, not only here, but in many places around the globe. And so before I say that the FBI raided uh, Mar-a-Lago, one of the homes um, and the office of former President Donald Trump, before I uh, get us uh, anywhere twisted up in that story, here is maybe the question that um, we want to have be before us. Um, when we talk about the U.S. government and where it gets its money, do you recognize that it's from U.S. taxpayers like you and me? And so if the U.S. government was going to spend $70 billion of our money on something, would hiring more IRS auditors be on your list of the way that that $70 billion should be spent? Because another really important thing has happened in the last uh, couple of days, and that was actually an action taken by the Senate, which is expected to be passed by the House, and that is something called the Inflation Reduction Act. But it includes a lot in it about a massive expansion of the IRS. Hmm. How do you feel about the way the government collects and then spends your money? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith is back. Uh, He serves at Cedarville University. And before we talk about the FBI's raid of former President Trump's home in Florida while he was in New York, I am going to remind you that here at Northwestern Media and Faith Radio, we are committed to remain completely neutral when it comes to candidates. So this is a conversation about um, an important thing that took place in terms of a former president of the United States who for all uh, evidences, intends to run to serve again as the president of the United States. And um, it's no small thing that the FBI executed a search warrant Mm. yesterday um, at his home. So, uh, Mark, first of all, good morning. And um, I don't know, what's your over and under on this? (laughs) Good morning, Carmen. Uh, Yeah, I was on social media last night and uh, saw it blow up on Twitter and was you know shocked in a lot of ways i mean as a political scientist someone who studies these kinds of things and teaches about them uh, this is probably the most significant presidential event since watergate 
I think. Um, it's just, it's, it's a massive moment. It's uh, historical and where it heads is really uh, unknown because there's so little, there's so much we don't know about the search warrant. Uh, we don't know precisely why it was being executed. We have a sense of that, uh, but we haven't seen the warrant. We haven't seen the evidence. We haven't seen anything. And so hopefully there'll be more information coming out here pretty quickly uh, so that people can at least begin to wrap their heads around why this was done. Well, and I um, I find it somewhat curious that although um, apparently this this raid began <clears throat> yesterday morning, we didn't hear reporting on it until uh, the five o'clock hour right. um, and only then because the uh, uh, an action, a political action committee released information related to it. So I, I right. the, the whole thing is a little uh, interesting and mysterious and we don't know what we don't know. So um, thank you so much for, you know, just acknowledging that there's just a lot there um, yet to be learned. Let's talk about um, the the Senate passing the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which might better be called the, I don't know, IRS Expansion Act or something else, because I don't, I'm not really sure it is an Inflation Reduction Act, although that's a really nice name. <laughs> it's a great name during a time of inflation, right? So uh, this is just a label on a bill designed to give it a public relations benefit and not necessarily descriptive at all of what the bill actually does. I mean, what this really is, is just a skinny version of the Build Back Better plan that President Biden really was touting uh, ever since the beginning of his administration. It's a much skinnier version you know, in terms of cost. Uh, that bill he was talking about was a $4 trillion bill. Uh, this is much, much lower than that, thankfully. Uh, but it does a lot of things. It, it raises uh, taxes on corporations, <clears throat> or at least it evens the taxes on corporations uh, gives them a 15% minimum tax for all of them. Um, it does lower prescription drug prices, or at least it will seek to. It extends healthcare subsidies. Uh, it also has a lot of climate initiatives within it. Uh, you know, uh, $400, $369 billion was last I saw <clears throat> on hopefully reducing climate emissions. And so there's a lot going on in this bill. As you mentioned also, it does allow for the hiring of 87,000 additional agents at the IRS um, which has nothing to do with inflation reduction, uh, nothing to do with climate, and everything to do with tax enforcement. And so, yeah, this is a bill that does an awful lot of things, but I would argue it everything that it does, it probably will do nothing for inflation. Um, so I just think that everybody needs to needs to understand that because uh, if you're thinking to yourself, hey, what happened to that? You need 60 votes in the Senate to, right. uh, you know, to right. pass anything massive. This uh, went through a process or a procedure called reconciliation that actually overrides those right. filibuster rules. <clears throat> yeah, it doesn't it didn't require 60 votes, as you said. Uh, reconciliation is, is really a, a technical part of the congressional budgeting process, uh, which grows out of sort of rules that Congress puts on itself and how it can budget and how it can pass budgets. And you can understand some wisdom to that because maybe we don't want the budgetary process to always be constricted by that 60 vote threshold. Um, and so as long as it's about funding in particular, as long as it uh, has legislation that changes spending, increases revenue, that doesn't create new programs, um, then it is part of this reconciliation process potentially. 
It has to go through a really technical review by a parliamentarian who's sort of a nonpartisan officer of the Senate who looks at legislation and makes determinations about the rules of the Senate. And the parliamentarian here decided that this did fit within this very narrow window of legislation that can go through this process. And as you said, it was 50-50 votes all the way down through the votes, through the amendments, through everything else. Uh, And so Vice President Harris uh, broke all of those ties in favor of the Democrats. And, you know, for those of you who have long memories, somewhat long memories, this really does harken back to those two lost Senate seats in Georgia um, a long time ago, it feels like, uh, which really gave the the Senate to the Democrats uh, back in 2020. All right. I want you to um, I want you to look in the mirror this morning and I want you to ask yourself, um, how regularly am I attending church? How fully am I um, woven into the warp and woof of a local congregation? Has your attendance um, dropped off? Are you now a nominal Christian, hyper individualistic? Yes, devoted to law and order, but cynical about systems or the system, distrustful of others. Well, you're not alone. Um, And it's bad. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. There'll be bluebirds over the white cliffs of Dover. We're talking with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Mark, I am um, reading in Christianity Today um, that an increasing percentage of people who consider themselves Christian are actually not attending church, not actively engaged in the life of a local congregation, not submitting to the authority of a local pastor, um, not even necessarily in uh, in the scripture they are cultivating a religiosity that is actually apart from or separate from the bride of Christ. I see this as a huge problem. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Um, according to this article, and it's, there's a lot going on in this article, uh, it deals with a lot of data and a lot of um, analysis of surveys. Uh, according to this article, 45% of white Southerners attend church rarely, but many of them still designate themselves as Protestant or Christian um, and label themselves as that. And it really looks at sort of how these people see themselves uh, in light of either going to church or not going to church. And it compares them uh, to people who who do go to church. And it finds that they're quite conservative, still quite conservative, quite Republican. Um, they're big into law and order. Uh, they believe spanking is sometimes necessary, you know, affirmatively. Uh, they have very strong conservative views when it comes to affirmative action and race. Um, but they are intensely anti-institutional, uh, have very little trust in their fellow human beings, and 
as you, I think as you, as you began to set this up, you know, have a really fractured view of community and what that potentially means. Um, individualistic or hyper individualistic is probably a good way uh, to describe these people. And I guess the question really is, and I think what you're getting at is what does that mean for our, the future of our country? If more and more people are unchurched and disconnected from these kind of bodies and really view themselves as individuals first and not part of a bigger group, um, whether that group is the church, which I think we would prefer, I would certainly like to see people in a church setting and church community or any other community that they could belong to. Um, you know, there's reams of social science data about the benefits of group membership and group attachment and what kind of effect it has on your life. Uh, and the more that we see that dwindle, I think the more cultural consequences we're looking at. Yeah, David in North Dakota says, uh, it just doesn't even feel right if I have to miss church for some reason. I see, I concur with that. Like, I I don't think that um, when Jesus, let's say, gives us the Lord's Prayer, um, you know, it starts with the word our. It doesn't start with the word my. It's This is not an, I mean, it, he doesn't even give us prayer necessarily as this uh, super individualistic or individualized experience. Um, there is, we are part of a body. The church is described as a body um, where every part functioning appropriately connected to the other parts of the body. We're not a, um, you know, we're not a bunch of body pieces and parts. We are a body. Um, we are a building. I mean, you're a brick. I'm a brick. We're built together um, into this uh, this thing that we call the church. Uh, and so for people to describe themselves as Christians, particularly evangelical Christians, um, or Bible-believing Christians, and and be disconnected, to hate the bride, frankly. I don't know how you can love the groom, how you can love the bridegroom, how you can love Jesus authentically and hate the bride. And if you don't ever um, associate with the church, the local expression of the church, I mean, this is God's plan. Uh, and so if you're dissociated from it, I mean, you're you're essentially hating the bride. I don't I don't know what kind of wedding that is. No, and I and I think it's it's worth it's worth thinking through. Um, how do you approach life, and how do you approach relationships outside of those sort of communal obligations that you have within a church setting? Let's say, let's just think of a simple issue like um, divorce. Uh, being part of a community. Uh, a where simple, we're taught very simple, particular things. A simple issue. I think by yeah. that you don't mean that it's uncomplicated. <laughs> I, I you don't. You mean it's easy to point to. Correct. That's exactly I right. So when you're part of an organization or part of a community where there's this expectation that you stay together, where there's this, this cultural sort of glue that holds people together, even very difficult times in a marriage, you have resources, you have networks, and you have people encouraging you uh, to, to stick this out and to make this work, because that's sort of the pattern that you see all around you. Whereas if you're disconnected, if you're rootless um, and things are difficult in your marriage, then, you know what, there's no one around you telling any telling you anything differently. So why not get divorced? Why not start over? You know, why not just sort of move along uh, based on your own feelings and your own thoughts, as opposed to the sort of broader body that you can appeal to? And so even something like that, you could see what the difference might be. Uh, when you belong to a group. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I think this is a very, uh, potentially a very troubling trend that we're looking at. And, you know, this this is, in some ways, this is sort of the step that you take towards secularization, uh, like we're seeing in parts of Europe, where you see just very uh, broad swaths of the public that are disconnected from institutional relig religion, 
um, and that are just sort of uh, rootless in many ways. And so, you know, I think America is unusual. It's unique in many ways, uh, but it's certainly uh, this can happen in America as well. So let me encourage you, um, if you're listening right now and you're not connected to a local church fellowship, a local church body, um, I'm going to I'm going to encourage you. I mean, seriously encourage you to get connected. Um, we are not intended to be individualistic, individual Lone Ranger Christians. Um, we are, you know, designed to be knit together as a body. Is it complicated? Yeah. Do I like everybody at the local church? No. Do they all like me? No. Which surprises none of you. Um, but but we're in it together, right? It's a family. It's the people we're going to spend eternity with. Um, it's kingdom demonstration to the rest of the world. It's also the place where we aggregate together the resources um, through which we can respond to issues that are bigger than we can handle on our own. Um, and so when you have an issue that's bigger than you can handle on your own, what group is going to care for you in the midst of that? Um, and so there, there is also this need to be in the body of Christ so that we can respond together um, when challenges come and challenges come. So, uh, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith, thank you as always so much for being with us. Blessings on the start of the new academic year. Um, and yeah, thank you for helping us, you know, unwind the ball of twine. Thank you, Carmen. It's always good to be with you. And I'll talk Appreciate to you again it. soon. Likewise. Do you need a little upwards? Do you need some... Um, some encouragement in your day. That's what's coming next here on Mornings with Carmen. You got something to say. If you're living, if you're breathing, you got something to say. Ha, Jim and Simsbury says, well, that surprises me. I can't imagine people not liking our Carmen. Yeah, here's news for Jim and everybody else. Um, you are in a unique and discreet tribe. Mm-hmm. We are in it together, and there are other tribes, and it's not that they don't like me. They don't like us. There you go. Mm-hmm. There you go. Um, all right. So um, good morning, good morning, good morning. If you're just joining us, this is Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge on the Faith Radio Network. I remember when, I remember when, because I was um, deeply engaged in this conversation and debate <clears throat> challenge. I remember when the Presbyterian Church USA voted to affirm that those who were ordained were required to abide by a standard of, uh, here's the quote, fidelity in marriage between a man and a woman or chastity and singleness. That became known in the Book of Order of the Presbyterian Church USA as G60106B. Like, that's how well I remember it, that I can quote it chapter and verse. Fidelity in marriage between a man and a woman or chastity in singleness. Um, and there was a nationwide effort to add that language to the Constitution of the Presbyterian Church USA. And then once that language was affirmed, that officers in the Presbyterian Church would abide by a, a standard of sexual behavior of fidelity in marriage between a man and a woman or chastity and singleness, all hell broke loose. And there then became a concerted effort to not only strip that language from the Constitution of the Presbyterian Church USA, but to affirm all manner, all manner of sexual deviance um, uh, among among those who are ordained. So it led to years of debate over the meaning of marriage, which has now been utterly redefined, and um, over the meaning of chastity. 
So G60106B, or this standard of fidelity in marriage between a man and a woman, was ultimately stripped from the ordination standards and from the Constitution of the Presbyterian Church USA. And that denomination now boasts um, ordained deacons, elders, and pastors and advocacy um, among those who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer, and polyamorous. And it's not just the PCUSA. It's not just the PCUSA. The debate is now being had in other denominations. So do you know, do you know what chastity means, what marriage means in the denomination of which your church is a part? What does chastity mean? What does marriage mean? What churches are currently debating that? Stay tuned. Sarah Zylstra serves at the Gospel Coalition. You can find what she is writing at thegospelcoalition.org. We're going to look together um, about an article recently posted about the Christian Reformed Church. Sarah, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much for having me. All right. The CRC, for people who don't know, is what and why do you care? (laughs) <laughs> it is the Christian Reformed Church. Um, the full name is Christian Reformed Church in North America, and I care because I was born into this denomination. Carmen, I have been a CRC member my entire life. All right, and um, part of what the CRC relies on in terms of its confessional documents is something called the Heidelberg Catechism, which for people who are not in a confessional church, they may not even understand why uh, a catechism matters or why a confessional standard matters. But in the Heidelberg Catechism, there is language um, that talks about chastity or unchastity. So that is where this conversation centers. So tell us what's going on in the CRC in relationship to a conversation about the definition of unchastity. Yeah. So the Heidelberg Catechism is a set of questions and answers about our faith um, that was written back in the 1500s. And um, I think almost every Reformed denomination relies on it in terms of understanding kind of a worldview. And one of the things that it lays out is that um, unchastity is forbidden. Um, and there's lots of Bible verses that will back that up. Um, and so, at, but as time rolls along, of course, we start to say, well, what does unchastity really mean? Our culture kind of is changing what it thinks about sexuality. Did God really say, we say to each other, um, does this really mean this? Does it really mean that? So every once in a while, we have to kind of think about those things again. They, they pull them back up and look at them. Did God really say this um, or not? And what does it mean for us today? So that's what the CRC has been wrestling through for the past couple of decades. And so the question last month before um, the CRC was to affirm that unchastity includes, here's a list, adultery, premarital sex, or, you know, fornication, Mm -hmm. extramarital sex, which would be sex beyond the bounds of uh, one man and one woman, polyamory, pornography, and homosexual sex. So the reason we have to have a list is because people no longer understand what it means to be chaste, and they certainly don't know what it means to practice fidelity in marriage between a man and a woman. Um, But this was affirmed with a pretty significant vote. 
Yes, a significant vote. It was 123 to 53, so it wasn't even close. Um, they, they, the CRC took a pretty firm stance on what this means. And why that's interesting, especially to me, is because um, the CRC, maybe you've, maybe your listeners have heard of Calvin University, um, is not has been, and the denominational leadership has been gradually um, leaning more liberal and more mainline over the last couple of decades. So they've been sort of the the uh, things that come out of Calvin, the things that come out of Grand Rapids, where the denomination is headquartered, have been more and more liberal. So you would expect by this point in time that as they're having this conversation, the vote would have been a lot closer or maybe even gone the other way. All right. Who votes? Like uh, we already have people asking, OK, 123 to 53. Who are those who are those people or what what do those numbers represent? Yes. OK. So the CRC, um, ha- and I think this is true of a lot of denominations, right? You have a general assembly or you have a convention or some sort of annual gathering of leaders every year to kind of, you know, tell the denomination how it's going to go. Um, and and the CRC is split up into regions, kind of like states, if you think of it as the United States, and those are called classes. And inside each of those, um, there's a gathering of churches. So you'd have a Midwest classes and maybe an Iowa classes and a California classes, a couple out there. Um, and inside each one of those classes, you get to send four delegates to synod. So you send a pastor and you send an elder and you could send a deacon or, but it has to be somebody, someone who is in leadership within those churches. So not every church sends a delegate. Um, just four within that classes can come, but it could be anybody who's in the, in an ordained office. All right. So next time around, like, see, here's, see, here's the mm-hmm. cynic in me or the realist. Um, next time around, different people could be elected to vote. The question could be different. This could come back or this is now done, decided we're moving on. Oh, this can definitely come back. Um, this this was laid out this year. Everybody was surprised at how strong it was. Um, what we can hope for is that it was true, right? We can mm-hmm. hope for like this is an accurate representation of the denomination and it will stand going forward. Um, or we can't or maybe next year different delegates go to synod. Now, the hopeful person in me thinks that, wow, 123 to 53 isn't close enough that shoving a couple delegates one way or the other is going to, you know, bridge that gap. Okay. So now I have some bad news for you because this okay. is the, this is the journey that I walked in the PCUSA. Um, yeah. And it was by a 75% vote that we affirmed fidelity and marriage between a man and a woman and chastity and singleness as the standard for ordination. Um, and then it was affirmed by a 75% vote, not just at a general assembly, but of our presbyteries across the country. It took less than a decade mm. for those who were advocating for um, sexual license um, to so overwhelmingly overturn that. It was not only stripped from the Constitution, it then became the active practice to remove those from ministry who did not affirm um, mm. LGBTQ uh, and then T uh, officers. So mm-hmm. I'm 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 not I'm I am so hopeful with you that the CRC is going to find the strength to stand in a way that other denominations have not. Um, but the carnage of the body of Christ in this country in terms of this process um, is not is not hopeful. So hear me say this. I, yeah. I am happy. I am happy to come alongside anybody who wants to armor up for this fight um, because it is one I have walked through. 
I, um, I hear what you were saying. I think that's also happening with the Methodist Church. It also actually happened with CRC's sister congregation, which is the Reformed Church of America, where on paper, um, even, and this is a little different than the PCUSA, but on paper it says that they're um, confessional and orthodox on sexuality, and yet there's a, a difference in practice. They are not. And in a case like that as well, it is just as devastating. You have to match your paper to your practice. So what the CRC did at their last synod this summer was not only did they say it, but they immediately also um, ordered, I guess is the right word, a church in Grand Rapids that has a has ordained a same-sex married lesbian deacon and told this church, listen, you have to um, remove her from office. And they also asked that they would uh, that the denomination would work with that classes to make sure that that doesn't happen again and that they understand that that was wrong. Um, that said, I 100% hear what you are saying, and it is possible that things change in the CRC. If it, if it goes liberal, um, of course, we know what happens then, right? It, it dies. There is no it's church that... It's devastating, it, it, yeah. You cannot thrive. You cannot thrive that way. The, the conservative churches who are healthy and thriving ones pull out, and you're left with a shell of a denomination. We see this over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. It's I completely agree with you. So thank you so much for bringing us this story. Let's mm-hmm. um let's start a conversation about another um story posted at thegospelcoalition.org. Again, we're talking with Sarah Zalstra. Um this piece is called Transformation of a Transgender Teen. We can start this conversation, Sarah, and then we'll have to pick it up again in a minute. Um t- tell us Eva's story. And I know we're using names here that are um you know, that have been changed to to protect the folks. But um, tell us Eva's story. She's a mom who got an email from her 12-year-old daughter um, during a church luncheon. Yes, and her daughter said to her, I am now a boy, please call me they and them. And the reason that this was just a gut punch for Eva was that just a couple months before, her daughter had been on a, um, a, a social media site where you share your art, Um, 12-year-old girl, and she had run across the LGBTQ community for the first time, and her friends on there and her friends at school were talking to her about transgenderism. She didn't even know what it was, and so they explained to her, oh, you know, some people can, if you're a boy, you can actually be a girl, or if you're a girl, you can actually be a boy, or you could be neither. Um, And so Grace asked Eva about it. She asked her mom and said, what is this? And Eva, who has, this is a strong Christian family, good theology, explained to her that's not how God made us. And so Grace went back to her friends online and said, I don't believe that. That's not how God made us. And her her mom got scared she was going to get bullied. Um, but she wasn't bullied. Instead, she was invited to the Genders and Sexualities Alliance at her school, in which you go and meet with other kids um, from sixth grade to twelfth grade, in this case, unsupervised, in this case, for an hour every once in a while at lunchtime, and they talk about sex and their bodies and how uncomfortable they are and different things you could do to your body or do with other people with your body. Um, and, you know, Grace herself, a 12-year-old girl, wasn't feeling super comfortable in her body as no 12-year-old girl does and eventually started to think, if I'm not comfortable in my body, maybe it's because I'm not a girl. So for a while, she thought she was a gender, having no gender. And then after a while, um, it started to dawn on her through conversations with these kids, hey, maybe we can just take hormones and become a boy. And wouldn't that be great? You would be bigger and stronger. Um, and that sounds awesome. So therefore, she emailed to her mother and said, now I want to be a boy. 
All right, we're going to pick up on this story in just a moment um, with Sarah Zalstra from the Gospel Coalition. What happens in um, this story of this young girl raised in a Christian family, exposed to LGBTQ um, people at her school, um, who begins to explore that, well, maybe I'm not a girl. The rest of the story next in just a moment. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of what we do on live radio every day. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you at MyFaithRadio.com. Right now, we're inviting you to share your Faith Radio story. What do you love about Faith Radio? What do you love about Mornings with Carmen? How has this program changed the way you think or the way you live, the way you engage others in the conversations of the day? We really do want to hear from you. Your story could encourage someone else and certainly glorify God. So share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leave us a message today. Again, thanks for listening. What happens if you have a child who, in this case, is uh, on the autism spectrum? Uh, She is artistic. She was looking for community. She found it um, online where in a place where she could post her artwork. That is where she became exposed to the gay is good message, eventually targeted by the community um, through her gender and sexualities alliance at school. It's a uh, it's a club at school. Um, and she came to the place where at 12, having been raised in a Christian home, intact family, parents um, love each other, love Jesus. Uh, she just declared that, you know, I'm no longer a girl. Um, I'm I'm now a boy. How did her parents respond? That's the conversation we're having now with Sarah Zylstra. Sarah, um, these parents responded in what I can describe as the most admirable of ways. So, um, you know, unfold for us some of the rest of this story. Yeah. So Eva, who is the mom, um, was devastated by this. She and her husband went back to the Bible, poured through it. What, you know, can we find any wisdom here? Of course, you're reading what God says. This isn't right. She went to the school principal and the pediatrician and the counselor and everybody she could think of. And she heard the same message from all of them, um, Carmen, which was, if you don't affirm this, your daughter will commit suicide. You can either have an alive son or a dead daughter. But Eva had a background in psychology and education, and she she said, you know, I could think of 15 reasons why a 12-year-old girl might be uncomfortable in her body beyond, I'm a boy and you have to affirm that or I'm going to commit suicide. So she just kept plugging away at it. And eventually, um, after seeing enough signs from this, it dawned on her that this looked a lot like a cult. Um, and what she did was bought a book on cults and how to get out of cults. And she just read through it and applied those principles with grace. So one of the first principles is to remove her from her situation where she is, remove the person out of the, the cult physical area where the cult is. Well, this is exceptionally difficult um, because before where Grace had been awkward at school, now she was very affirmed. People would come out of their way to talk to her. She described it sort of as like eating that magic mushroom when you're playing Mario Kart and all of a sudden you're invincible. People will come and talk to you. They told her how much they loved her, how proud they were of her. She could have any conversation with anybody about gender and sex. And she was now um, really popular in that way. So it's hard to get somebody like that away from that environment because they like it, right? They're getting a lot of affirmation there. 
So she said the, the biggest mistake we made was social media. The second biggest was leaving her in her public school for that next year. Um, but at the end of eighth grade, they took her out. She said, you're not going back for high school. And she began to homeschool her. The, th the second thing principle for getting somebody out of a cult is to build up healthy relationships with them. And this was something else that homeschooling did for them, because now you're not just fighting over the gender situation all the time. You're talking about science and you're talking about math and you're talking about English and you're just um, going on field trips. And so your relationship, their relationship became a lot more full orbed. They brought her sister home as well. And so they were all home. They were homeschooling together and building those relationships. And the third principle that she applied here was to ask questions. But the problem was none of Eva's questions or her husband's were getting through to Grace because, you know, if you've got a, a 13, 14 year old kid, it's hard for them to hear their parents. But they joined a homeschool co-op to get some support. And, and it was pretty conservative, as they tend to be. And they asked a lot of questions. They asked, like, what do you mean? What is transgender? How could it possibly be that you're a boy? And that is what she could hear those questions. Grace heard those questions. She got mad. She's like, I'm going to research this and prove that this is right. Um, but in all, the source of all her, and as she was researching all of this, she started to think, uh-oh, I can't prove this. What if I'm wrong? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like this part. Um, I decided to come up with irrefutable arguments. So I researched and researched, but I couldn't do it. I searched and searched for the logic behind it, but there was nothing to find because there's no logic behind it. Now, those are the words of uh, Grace, now 16. Um, and so Grace is now, um, has now desisted, all right? She's back. Um, mm -hmm. I, I like the emphasis on the fact that she never lost her faith. Can you talk with us a little bit about, um, you know, where things stand now? Yeah, I like that emphasis too. Um, what was interesting there is that she said, I always believed in God. What I thought was, well, there's sin in the world. And so God maybe made me and intended me for be, to, me to be in a boy body. But somehow through the effects of sin, I ended up in a girl body. So I'm just in the wrong body. So it's just redeeming of things for me to try and get myself back into this boy body. Um, but as time went along and all these other things were happening to her, she's realizing I cannot be both a Christian and transgender. Um, this is how God made me. So I, I either have to reject him and, and the Bible, um, or I have to reject these feelings that I'm having. And so she, I can remember going for a walk with the dog and saying, fine, God, I guess, okay, I'll be a girl. And within a week, those, those feelings of um, desiring to be another gender desisted. Now, I'm not saying that this is true for everyone. I do think gender dysphoria is real. I think what Grace had is what some people call rapid onset gender dysphoria, where it's much more, um, much more socially influenced there than, than having an actual psychological disorder. Yeah, it's a really great um, article. And if you're listening right now and you're thinking, that is just a resource that I need in my life. I know a family struggling with this. I know um, this would be a good conversation to have with my um, tweens and young teens so that they can hear this story of Grace and how she um, how she came to believe something that wasn't true about herself and about others and how she rediscovered the truth um, and is now living, as she describes, a much more happy life. So you can find it at thegospelcoalition.org. You are looking for, you can just get all of uh, everything that Sarah writes, but you're looking for a piece by Sarah Zylstra, Transformation of a Transgender Teen. 
if you um, if you download the Faith Radio app and or use myfaithradio.com and click on uh, the podcast for this show, this link is going to be included in the show notes for today and available on all my social media. So there you go. Sarah, as always, what a delight to talk with you. Um, another great piece um, that Sarah's got up is called Scrolling Alone. So don't miss what she's writing. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, likewise, keep up the good work. Um, you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I am Carmen LaBerge. Let's get, a, let's get a little news. Let's get a little update on what's happening in the world. And then you and I are going to talk about what's next. This is amazing This is Amazing Grace, and this is Unfailing Love. Let's just consider that for a moment. This is Amazing Grace. This is Amazing Grace, and this is Unfailing Love. The mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. He never grows weary of loving you, waiting for you, wooing you. He never grows weary of your questions. He loves when you turn to him with acknowledgement, attention, even surprise and delight. Maybe something's blooming today that you hadn't noticed before. Um, You know, as you pass that bush or that field, just say a quick open-eyed prayer of thanksgiving to God for the flowers he sent you. Like acknowledge him today. As clouds pass overhead or um, thunder begins to roll, like whatever it is, let everything in creation be a signal to you of the creator God. And thank God for his grace, for his goodness, for his word, for the fellowship of the saints, for his spirit, for every good and perfect gift that comes from the father of lights above. Thank him that he has prepared in advance good works for you to do and that he has fully equipped you to meet those opportunities as his agent of grace, an ambassador of his kingdom, a child after his own heart. Turn to him today. I know you're dealing with things. Um, Pray today for one another. Pray for Rick today. Pray for Amy today. Pray for Mary today. Pray for Jim and Jessica. Folks are dealing with stuff, right? Hearts are breaking. We don't always know how to react. But God is good and gracious and present and powerful and available. Don't fail to turn to him as the greatest resource you could ever have to meet the challenges of this day. And then just let him hold you in the midst of it when there's nothing else to do. Hey, we got another hour together next here on the Faith Radio Network. So we'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.